Bonjour, agus Chiadiv. Welcome to The Irish in Canada, the podcast exploring the histories and legacies of Irish immigrants and their Canadian descendants. I'm your host, Jane McGaughy. This is episode number five, The Gowans. Last time on The Irish in Canada, we discussed the origins of the Orange Movement in Upper Canada and its growth in the colony after 1815. Today, we're going to look at the man who made the Orange Order into an increasingly powerful and, let's just call it what it was, a violent organization whose actions reflected an ultra-Protestant, anti-Catholic, and pro-British Empire worldview. Ogle Robert Gowan was born in County Wexford on July 13, 1803, five years after the 1798 Rising. He became an Orangeman shortly before his 15th birthday, and it soon became the core ideology of his life. At the age of 26, he left Ireland after a court case made his illegitimacy a matter of public record. Emigration to Upper Canada might have been Ogilgowan's best route to find a new beginning where he would be known as Hunter Gowan's son rather than as a bastard. Or maybe not. Historian Donald Akinson, who once wrote a fictionalized biography of Gowan, has described him as a fascinating man with the cultural predilections of a goth, but who is the kind of high-risk subject that historians usually avoid. My favorite line from Akinson is that Gowan's career, quote, illustrates the unhappy fact that the origin of state power in this country is not found only in high philosophic notions, such as justice and natural law, but in the successful attempt of one group of Canadians to shaft another. End quote. Gowan arrived in Leeds County, Upper Canada, in 1829. Ogle knew he had relocated to an area full of families from County Wexford, who had their own ties to the 1798 Rising. Less than a year after arriving in Leeds, he invited a number of prominent gentlemen and settlers to the town of Brockville, where the rules and regulations of the Orange Institution of British North America were officially adopted on January 1st, 1830. Ogle thought that with his Orange and Wexford connections, he was a natural choice to become the local representative in the colonial legislature. The Gowan name, however, was controversial. His father had been one of the most infamous men associated with the 1798 Rising in Wexford. That surname could invoke feelings of loyalty or revulsion, depending upon how someone felt about the black mob. Ogle Gowan's political rivals in Leeds County were the local members of the Family Compact, the Joneses and the Sherwoods. They controlled the Conservative or Tory political positions, and Ogle wanted in. If you remember from last week's episode, the Family Compact was the oligarchy that ran the province. A small group of like-minded Tory men who controlled the government in Toronto and then supported their friends and allies across Upper Canada effectively making certain families local chieftains for their respective parts of the colony. Let me put it another way. Do you remember that clique of popular kids who seemed to control everything at your high school? It was a bit like that. Oligarchies are exclusive by design. These Tories of the family compact did not want to share power, and certainly not with some new Irish immigrant who had ideas above his station. They were offended by Gowan's blatant anti-Catholicism 
and thought he was trying to supplant the true loyalists of the county. Gowan, on the other hand, felt that these descendants of the original United Empire loyalists unfairly dominated the political landscape. The Joneses and the rest of the family compact were snobbish and judgmental, and Irishmen like Ogle Gowan were belligerent and ruthless. What could possibly go wrong? In 1833, Charles Jones wrote to the military authorities that, quote, Ogle R. Gowan has for some time past been reasoning in his endeavors to make his countrymen the Irish dissatisfied with the native inhabitants. He endeavors to impress upon their minds that they have been intentionally excluded from all situations of honor, profit, and enhancement. Gowan possesses quite too much influence with many of them and boasts that by the turn of his finger, he can produce any required number of shillelaghs to carry his points, end quote. Ogle Gowan embraced political violence, which deeply unnerved his opponents, Charles Jones included. In response, the local Tory newspaper, the Brockville Recorder, urged local voters to attend political meetings, quote, not with shillelaghs, but with a manly independence, end quote. But that kind of advice was a bit far-fetched if you were suddenly surrounded in the dark by a gang of pro-Gowan supporters ready to beat the hell out of you, with or without a shillelagh, for not supporting Ogle's political ambitions. Orange activities in Leeds County soon included violent coercion, intimidation, rioting, assault, and arson. That doesn't sound very Canadian, does it? But with the Orangemen around, that's what the colonies were like. So, why did Ogle Gowan feel that introducing violence into the Canadian political landscape was a good idea? Why did he indulge in derogatory stereotypes about wild and violent Irishmen if he truly wanted to increase Irish and Orange respectability in the colony? As Johnny MacDonald wrote in 1847, quote, Gowan thinks himself aggrieved, and highly as I appreciate his powers of benefiting us, I confess I fear his means of doing mischief more, end quote. Maybe the short-term prize of winning a seat in the colonial legislature was more important to him than the long game of cementing Irish respectability in Upper Canada. Maybe he fell into his own trap, where the possibility of social violence was too tempting for Orangemen used to triumphalist 12th of July parades and brawling with their enemies. On occasion, Gowan's supporters were too unruly even for his tastes. I am using all my influence to cool them down, he insisted, but they are very violent. In both 1834 and 1835, the results of elections in Leeds County were overturned by the government because of orange intimidation at the polling station. Forty years before secret ballot voting was introduced in Canada, reform and family compact voters were either physically barred from voting by Orangemen or felt threatened enough that they either remained silent or voted openly for Gowan. That kind of blatant cheating couldn't stand. However, after the 1835 results were thrown out, Lieutenant Governor Sir John Colborne received a very interesting petition from Ogle's supporters in Leeds, asking Sir John to dissolve Parliament so that Ogle could once again stand for election. 1,482 names were attached to the petition, including 50 different families that had emigrated from County Wexford in the previous 15 years. But there were some serious problems with the document, 
including the fact that Leeds County only had about 850 eligible voters in 1835, and yet there were nearly twice as many signatures on the petition. Something fishy was going on. Then, a year later, something even more bizarre happened. Ogle Gowan won a seat in the colonial legislature thanks to the support of his former rivals, the Joneses. What? I'm sure you're familiar with the line that politics makes strange bedfellows. Ogle had just gotten into bed with the very men he'd previously tried to destroy. What happened? Well, by 1836, the threat of actual rebellion in the colony was becoming more and more likely. It finally did happen in December of 1837, and the Gowan-Jones Conservative Alliance had become the only way for that United Empire Loyalist family to hold on to any local political power. The Irish in Leeds had become too powerful, and now the Orangemen were on the move. So far, I've talked about Ogle Gowan as an Orangeman, a politician, and a promoter of popular violence. But there's another aspect to his life that hasn't received the attention it should. What would the colonial press have done if only they had known the truth? Ogle Gowan was a cuckold. The second paragraph of the entry in the Dictionary of Canadian Biography for Sir James Robert Gowan, Ogle's first cousin, chronicles his arrival in Canada and says, quote, At the same time, he had an affair with Ogle's wife, of which Ogle was unaware. End quote. No more details are given about this alleged affair or its effect on the cousin's relationship. And so, I made a trip to the Archives of Ontario. And oh my, it's all there in the family papers. Ogle Gowan had married Frances Turner in August 1823, shortly after his own 20th birthday. She was, quote, a woman who possessed great personal charms, strict moral culture, and a most amiable and benevolent disposition, end quote. James Gowan had arrived from County Wexford in 1832 and settled in Toronto. By 1843, he had been appointed the youngest judge in the British Empire and is arguably the male member of the Gowan family who left the most notable marks on Canadian society as a lawyer, judge, senator, knight, political confidant, and privy councillor. He won the respect that had always eluded his cousin, there are many letters within the collection between Ogle and James in the 1830s. Within the same series, however, are a number of letters by James and Francis, written between 1836 and 1839, that reveal a deeply personal and emotional connection. It's not possible to tell from the letters alone if they actually had sex, or if this was an unconsummated love affair, but the letters back and forth between Brockville and Toronto are fraught with the emotions of a heated infatuation. In May 1836, James wrote to Francis, quote, I really believe that it is only those who know the difficulty of finding real friends of the opposite sex, beyond the circle of their immediate family, the delight experienced from even an epistolary communication and exchange of thoughts, who can experience joy and feel the ardor for perpetuating that tie which no other save those of a fraternal or matrimonial nature, is more deeply interwoven in the human heart. Such, my dear Mrs. G., 
are my realized feelings and desires, then why should I not be interested toward you? End quote. Trust me, for Upper Canada in the 1830s, that's some pretty racy stuff. By 1837, the request for more letters from both had increased. Why do you not write to me when you have so good a chance of giving them to Mr. G, who would forward your letters to me, wrote Francis at the beginning of the year. I am very lonesome. He is away so long, and the long nights so dreadfully cold. Now I will expect a letter or two every week from you. James replied, quote, I condole with you on your lonesomeness. It is so of friendship that a short absence serves to strengthen and increase it. Absence makes the heart grow fonder, and it is most likely this love is perfect and complete. Two months later, James wrote in a more worried tone, quote, I do not suppose you should direct a thought to your friends in the home district while your mind is so fully occupied with subjects so nicely pleasing. But you must write to me as soon as you conveniently can. Recollect, there are three of my letters unanswered. You did not write to me this long time. Could I have said anything in my letters that displeased you? An undated, half-missing note from Francis, likely from 1839, was underlined very dramatically. You can see it in this week's show notes on the website. Write to me, she states. I shall not make any apology to you about my not writing. She notes her drooping spirits before closing, I shall expect a letter from you every second day. I have not time to say more. Goodbye, yours most affectionately. James wrote in return, I will not promise to write every second day, but whenever I can, you will hear from me. Write and say what shall I tell you about and what you would like best to hear of. Her answer? Poetry. At one point, marriage was on James's mind. But the way he phrased his letter to Francis makes it clear that she was the only woman who mattered to him. He admitted that he had been, quote, wounded with a dart, but I assure you it has been a leaden one with all the young ladies I have had the honor of being acquainted with in this city. He's in love, but not with anyone in Toronto. He then continued that he wanted Francis's thoughts about the kind of woman he should marry. I would like to have your opinion of the sort you would recommend as a fit object for felling the first place in my valuable heart, as you term it. He then closed by warning her not to let anyone see his letter. This is only circumstantial evidence, but I think you should know that in the end, James Gowan did not get married until 1853, one year after Francis Gowan's death. It doesn't prove anything, of course, but it's very suggestive. By the early 1840s, James Gowan had become thoroughly disenchanted with the Orange Order, eventually wanting to erase any trace of his connection with it. He demanded that Ogle stop sending him copies of the pro-Orange newspaper The Statesman, and he wanted all of his letters returned that involved any discussion of Orangism. James felt that the Order should be entirely eradicated from Victorian society. The overall reputation of the Orange Order after its first official decade in Upper Canada was one of violence and disorder, and James Gowan had had enough. His decision to renounce his ties to Orangism was the making of his public career, 
It was a lesson his cousin never learned. In 1838, Ogle wrote to James that, quote, I yet hope to live to see you in Parliament for this or some other good, loyal county, and that we may be enabled to uphold the name of Gowan in this distant continent with as much respect and honor as it was once upheld in our native country. Four years later, James, attempting to gain a new position with the colonial legislature, wrote to a friend of his, quote, regret that the council shivered at the mere fact of my name being Gowan, nor can I comprehend why I am eternally mucked up with Ogle Gowan and his rascals and the violent and abusive statesmen. I am to be rejected, not because I am incompetent to the discharge of the office, not because I have ever opposed the government by word or act, but because my name is James R. Gowan. Alas, for a name. End quote. Next time on The Irish in Canada, we'll look at the life and career of a man who also stood up to the Orangemen, but whose imperial connections have made it hard for history to remember that he himself was Irish. Thanks for listening to The Irish in Canada. The show was researched, written, and narrated by me, Jane McGaughy. This season was edited and mixed by Patrick McMaster and produced by Marion Mulvenna. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kate Bevan Baker, and our logo was designed by Claire McCauley. Many thanks to the School of Irish Studies at Concordia University in Montreal, the Canadian Irish Studies Foundation, Le Gouvernement de Québec, and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada for their support. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast app. You can spread the word about the Irish in Canada by following us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Irish Canada Pod. Our website is the Irish in Canada Podcast.ca. That's where you can find show notes for our episodes, including lists of sources and recommendations for further reading. Until next time, Gora Maagif. <laughs>